Hello again, everybody. Welcome once again to another edition of City Talk. I am a big fan of baseball nostalgia and baseball history. And one of the most comprehensive books on extra inning ball games has been written by a reporter for the New York Times uh, named Dan Barry. And the book is called Bottom of the 33rd, Redemption and Hope and Baseball's Longest Games. And Dan, first of all, I can't tell you what a thrill it was to reread this book, and secondly, being able to talk to you about it. Well, thanks, Ken. Thanks for having me. And I will note that today is the anniversary, the 40th anniversary of the 33rd inning of that game. Oh, wow. I didn't even think of that, but yeah, I guess you're right. Um, but there are so many twists and turns and sidebar stories and everything in that book. Uh, first of all, you got the inspiration to write this from another book. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I used to live in Pawtucket. Um, I used to live about a, not even a quarter mile from McCoy Stadium, the old uh, WPA stadium where this uh, ball game took place. Uh, I lived close enough to be able to hear the crowds cheering whenever something wonderful happened. Um, but I never really gave much thought to the longest game, which had occurred several years earlier from when I was living in Pawtucket. And then maybe 12 years ago or so, um, I was waiting for a friend to go out for a beer and he had a copy of a children's book about the longest game um, written by a colleague of mine at the Providence Journal, a former colleague of mine. Um, and so, uh, I was flipping through it, you know, it's, it's, it's meant for, you know, first graders or kindergartners. And there's one detail in that uh, book um, that struck me. And that was that the game was played on uh, Holy Saturday night and played well into Easter Sunday morning. And that kind of blew me away. And I thought, wow, there's a theme to explore about redemption, about um, rebirth, about striving, ambition. I just thought it, it worked for me. And that's when I began to think about a baseball game. Now, something very interesting and ironic before we get into the game itself, it almost didn't get played because of a power failure. <clears throat> uh, that's right. So um, to set the scene a little bit, um, it was um, <clears throat> April of 1981. It was a cold night. Uh, people are mostly distracted by Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday uh, preparations. Um, and um, there was a game between the uh, Pawtucket Red Sox and the Rochester Red Wings. And, you know, in, in retrospect, a, a fairly inconsequential game given the early nature of the calendar. And um, <clears throat> this, as I said, was an old stadium. It was actually built on a swamp and was kind of a boondoggle for um, the Tammany Hall-like structure of Pawtucket politics uh, at the time during the late 30s and early 40s. And so now it's very cold. There's a baseball game. There's about 1,500 or 1,600 people uh, waiting. And they try to get the lights on, but the lights were malfunctioning. And so this, this went on for a little bit, more than a half an hour, until some, uh, some uh, Pawtucket uh, city employee managed to basically find some band-aids or something to connect some wires and the lights went on and so they decided to keep going with the game and it's funny too because the umpire that was behind the plate 
he, he really didn't want to be there. He wanted to go to his new home. Yeah, he, he yeah, I would say, quite frankly, Ken, a lot of people didn't necessarily want to be there. And the <laughs> empire was one of them. He had other things going on in his life. And I think there were some people who may have been privately rooting for the game to be postponed. Uh, but uh, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, the lights went on. All right, I'm going to mention a couple of names, and you can take off on them as much as you like. Let's start with Billy Broadbender, I believe. Um, uh, right, uh, Billy Broadbent. Broadbent, right. Um, right, so <clears throat> Billy Broadbent was, uh, you know, in his early tweens. WBCA early teens, Radio lived, is proud you know, to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is rabid, alive rabid and well. With your host, fan, Boston rabid, radio uh, veteran, Red Ken Sox Meyer. Fan, and he was the bat boy. And he was, you know, I think he would tell you that he was like many boys in their early teens, uh, let's say, yeah, unsure of himself, trying to figure out his way in life and uh, in awe of all these ballplayers he's, he's walking around. And they used to kind of tease him because he was so earnest. Um, in fact, I think his nickname was Panic, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, because he was, let's say, uh, uh, easily excitable or, or uh, you know what? He was a teenage boy, a young teenage boy. And, uh, you know, he had a little bit of a history because in an earlier game, I think the season before, um, some of the Pawtucket ballplayers had goaded him into uh, going up to a, an umpire who wasn't calling um, the balls and strikes the way the team wanted. And uh, young Billy Broadbent was uh, induced into saying something, let's say, foul to, to, the, <laughs> to the umpire. I'm not going to repeat it, but you can guess it. He had some uh, yeah. suggestions. He had some suggestions uh, that the umpire might do to himself. So, uh, uh, you know, he got, you know, so he got kicked out of the ball game. The, the bad boy got kicked out of the ball game. So it kind of made national news for, you know, a half an hour or so. Uh, it, what's so del delicious about that is that he would have been the least likely bad boy of all bad boys to be kicked out of a ball game. He was such a nice and obedient and uh, uh, earnest young man. Yet, yet there he was, bad boy kicked out of a baseball game. So he's there that night and he stays the entire night. Mm-hmm. And, and he figured prominently later on with the Boston Red Sox. Uh, that's right. Um, he, um, he becomes, um, he might've been one of the earliest ones to do this. You know, he, he, he would study the tapes. So he gets a job with the Boston Red Sox, the parent club up in Fenway. And among his jobs um, is to examine tape and to notice things that might help the team when they're uh, uh, playing uh, an opponent. And so it became kind of an important um, skill, a valuable skill. And I think it figured, correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, but doesn't it figure in the 2004 uh, American League playoffs? Doesn't he, yes. he pick up something that helps Dave Roberts um, steal second? Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. No, you're absolutely correct. And uh, uh, 
Right. And so this this bat boy, uh, you know, in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, grows up to become an integral part of um, the first world championship for the Boston Red Sox in, you know, a very, very long time. And so uh, the last I spoke to him, he was quite a valued member of the uh, of the Boston Red Sox organization. Now, this this was a very low scoring game, which I was surprised at when I reread the book. Oh, my goodness. Sure. And before we continue, I do want to uh, note that the, that that book that uh, inspired my book was written by Steve Krasner, K-R-A-S-N-E-R. And so if you have any little ones, uh, you might uh, track down Steve Krasner's book about um, the longest game. Uh, um, it's a uh, it's quite sweet. Um, but you're exactly right. Um, you know, at, at the end of the 33 innings. Uh, the score was only three to two. Um, and so um, they were, they were knotted um, for a very, very long time. So the, 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 as I recall, the Red Wings score in the top of the seventh inning, you know, okay, now it's the bottom of the ninth and, um, and the um, Paw Sox tied up with a sacrifice fly. Okay. Um, a guy named Russ Larrabee, I think, hits a fly ball uh, that drives in the run. Uh, and Larrabee is famous for, I think he, he, he struck out six times, that six or seven times that game. Uh, right. But, uh, you know, people marvel at how many strikeouts he had. But, you know, fair play to him. He drove in the run that kept the game going. Um, so uh, then the game continues um, the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, all the way, I think, into the 21st or 22nd inning. And uh, the Red Sox score um, in the top of uh, the 21st or 22nd. Um, and uh, in the bottom of that inning, uh, Wade Boggs gets up with a man on base and he... Uh, we should note at some point that actually two Hall of Fame ball players were in this game: Wade Boggs at third base for the Pawtucket Red Sox, and Cal Ripken Jr. Maybe some people recognize that name, uh, who was the who was the young third baseman for the Rochester Red Wings. Anyway, Wade Boggs gets up, and you know when he used to get up to the plate, he would um, draw a um, a Hebrew sign in the box. It was his good luck thing. I, any any Boston Red Sox fan of a certain age will know that he had many little uh, quirks and uh, and uh, superstitions. In fact, as I recall it, he didn't like to have his bat touch the bats of other ball players and Pawtucket, you know, in the in the rack or any anything in the end of the dugout because he didn't want their bad hitting habits infecting his bat, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I didn't know that, I didn't know that viruses and diseases could be transferred um, through wood, but apparently. Uh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, he hits a double and drives in a tying run and he's standing on second base and he's feeling pretty good about himself. And he looks in the dugout and he sees that his teammates aren't particularly happy with him. It's cold. It's now like, you know, two or three in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, perhaps. And, uh, you know, they kind of wanted to go home. But um, 
So uh, he said, he, I think he famously said, I don't know whether they wanted to uh, hug me or hit me. And, uh, and so now the game continues. It's two to two. And it would stay that way, locked in that score up until the conclusion and uh, the bottom of the 33rd. Now, if, if I remember right in the book, the game could have been stopped. Uh, but it was the third base umpire who was the crew chief that night that kept it going while everybody else wanted to stop it. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and to be fair to that uh, crew chief, um, he and his um, colleagues who were umping that game, there were three of them, um, understood the rule books for the International League. Um, they understood the regs. And so every winter, the regs for the International League, um, which is a AAA, uh, which was a AAA um, league, uh, you know, by the way, all those leagues have been, uh, have, have gone away. No one, I, I think most people don't even realize that there's no longer anything called the International League or the Pacific Coast League or any of a number of other leagues. Um, Major League Baseball has effectively taken over minor league baseball, which had been a, a kind of a separate entity. Um, and so every winter, the, the regs would be re-examined and tuned up and what have you. And for some reason, while they were doing that in their offices in Dublin, Ohio, a paragraph fell out and the paragraph had to do with curfews and that a game shall not go beyond um, a certain time. I think it might've been, you know, midnight or 1230 in the morning. Uh, that paragraph in the retyping of the, of the regs had, had fallen out and no one noticed this except some of the umpires, including that crew chief. And so when it came to the 15th inning and it was well after midnight, uh, there was a desire to end the game. And uh, I think the managers of both teams thought that the game would be uh, postponed or, 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 or suspended at that moment. And the crew chief said, uh -uh, we're going. And so uh, that prompted the, um, the, um, the, the officials uh, for the Pawtucket Red Sox, you know, the, the assistants and, the, and, the, and the, the vice president or what have you, the general manager, to begin calling the league president, a guy named Harold Cooper, a crotchety old guy in Columbus, Ohio, and he wouldn't answer the phone. He was asleep or he wouldn't pick up the phone because everyone knew that he was the head of um, the International League. And so late at night, guys in Columbus, Ohio, would get drunk at the bar and have a fight over who led the International League in, in home runs in 1955. And to settle the bet, they'd call this poor guy and wake him up. So he was accustomed to not picking up the phone. And so the phone kept ringing and the game kept going. But but some of these guys dragged out the International League Constitution where there was something in there about calling a game and everything else. And they still kept it going. The umpires wouldn't back down from the fact that that particular paragraph was not in the 1981 bylaws. That, that's right. But I think they were showing some documentation that, that uh, was uh, old. It was probably proper and it was probably wise to have uh, uh, followed those regs. But um, I think the guy's name was Jack Leach, the crew chief. You know, he was a stickler for what was in the 1981 regs, and that wasn't in there. 
Was was he a pompous? You know what? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I I I don't I don't know. I I, I spoke with uh, the other two umps, and um, I think that they remembered him as being you know a good guy, but a guy who followed the book. Mm -hmm. We we talk about sidebar stories. You mentioned Wade Boggs. You mentioned Cal Ripken Jr. I think another gentleman who deserves mentioning and who eventually got tossed out of the game uh, and wound up later on as manager of the Red Sox was Joe Morgan. Oh, what a lovely guy. What you could sit with him and talk baseball and life forever. He's just endlessly fascinating and wise and uh, surprising and funny um, but you're exactly right. So he, he was, you know, he was a baseball lifer and, uh, people listening to this will remember that in the off season, back in the day, ball players, particularly in the minor leagues, you know, they had to have other jobs. They would get jobs uh, at a car dealership or, or at some loyal fans insurance office or what have you. And so Joe Morgan had a family to support there in Walpole. And uh, he worked for, I think he worked for the, uh, the, uh, the Turnpike Authority, didn't he? And I think he was in yeah. charge of like, um, it, it, rather he worked um, clearing snow um, from, from the highways. Um, mm -hmm. And so he had, uh, he had played um, in the Blackstone Valley uh, early in his life, um, and he 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 bounced back and forth between the minors and the majors, and he stuck in the majors for a few years, and then he bounced around as a minor league manager for many years, and um, and they loved him in Pawtucket. They just loved him, and um, he was kind of a no nonsense guy, you know. Uh, he wasn't one to sweet talk an outfielder who couldn't hit a curveball, he would tell him straight up, you got to hit the curveball. You got to work on that. Um, and so you're exactly right. He's the manager of the Pawtucket Red Sox this night. And uh, the, the manager for the Rochester Red Wings is another former major league ball player named Doc Edwards, another lifer who uh, for a while played for the New York Yankees and used to pal around with Mickey Mantle. So you have these two guys who have seen Major League Baseball um, grow over the last, uh, the prior 25, 30 years. And now here they are on this cold night in Pawtucket, uh, you know, uh, locked in this kind of existential battle. <laughs> and so uh, what happened was Morgan, who was kind of famous for his antics, uh, there are plenty of photographs of him uh, doing crazy things on the field, um, you know, not unlike trying to pry a base out of out of its lock, you know, or sliding into a base to illustrate a point. Um, he went out and got into it with one of the umpires, and um, they bounced him. And so when you're bounced from a game, you're not supposed to sit in the dugout anymore. You're, you're supposed to be gone. And so what he did was uh, he went around the side of this old stadium and watched the rest of the game through a peephole, um, you know, in, in kind of a plywood at the backstop. Um, and that's where he watched the game from the 22nd inning on. The other two things I'll remember about Joe Morgan, 
is how he got the job. I mean, some people will use the term chutzpah, <laughs> and that's what he had, and that's what got him that job. And the other thing is the great offer that uh, Ben Mondor made to Joe while yeah. he was in Pawtucket. Right. Uh, so um, he, you know, Joe had no uh, no shortage of appreciation for his self worth, and I think rightly so. You know, he knew baseball. Okay. And so um, the Pawtucket Red Sox recognized his worth as well. And the owner, a guy named Ben Mondor, who um, uh, came from Woonsocket by way of uh, uh, Canada, um, really didn't know much about baseball. And we could talk a little bit about him, but he didn't know much about baseball, but he did know that uh, Morgan did know a lot about baseball. And he tried to lock him down um, to say, look, Joe, I'll give you a lifetime contract if you just promise to stay here. And Morgan gave it considerate, um, uh, considerable thought, rather. Uh, but finally, he, 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 he declined the offer. He was very flattered, and it would have made him comfortable. Um, but he, uh, he harbored a desire, quite frankly, to manage in the major leagues one day. And it wound up for Joe to be the right choice because, as as we all know, he went on to uh, manage the uh, the Red Sox uh, several years later. You know, the Morgan miracle. Yeah. But he but he got the job because he called Dick O'Connell at home. Oh right, right, right. Um, yeah. So as I said, he was he was um, he was. Um, not shy about it. And I think you can imagine that the, the, he's also, he's just a, a blue collar guy who worked his way up. And you could imagine how that might not have um, uh, fit in necessarily, at least in the executive offices of, uh, of the Boston Red Sox in, in Fenway Park. They were more, let's just say, uh, uh, of a not blue collar but blue nose right and so uh, he would assert himself and he did you're right he did call and um and uh, i think they rolled their eyes uh, he, he couldn't get a he couldn't get a time of day from them for a long while uh, but but finally uh, finally he did maybe maybe just to uh have his calls end i don't know <laughs> there is there is a very funny story when i read it in here i laughed out loud about Luis Aponte, relief pitcher. Yeah, so he, you know, he he played in the major leagues and he was quite effective. And so the the, the Pawtucket Red Sox during this game um, used several pitchers, and uh, Aponte came in uh, in the late innings and pitched, I think, five or six innings um, and did very well. Um, I don't think they scored off him at all. Um, and so um, this is late now. He's, I think, you know, can forgive me, but I think it's like the, the ninth, tenth, eleventh, um, twelfth innings around that period of uh, the game. Yep. And uh, so he um, he um, acquits himself quite well. He holds off the the Rochester Red Wings. And then uh, after a while, um, he, um, he wants to go home. Uh, 
uh, he lived, you know, like many of the ball players, had a place not too far from the ballpark. Um, it's quite late, though, you know, it's quite late. And so uh, one of his teammates agrees to give him a ride home. And he goes to his apartment. The teammate waits in the car. And, and uh, Aponte's wife won't let him in. They have, a, they have an argument through the screen door. And she thinks that she, he's been out carousing because no one in their uh, right mind would be playing baseball at this hour of the night. And so she thinks that he's just made up a story about this baseball game that won't end and she won't let him into their apartment. So then he sheepishly comes back to the car. <laughs> the teammate drives him back to McCoy Stadium and he um, goes to sleep for a little bit on one of the trainer's tables in the clubhouse. Uh, he eventually does go home and his uh, wife forgives him or he explains the situation. And uh, I think uh, domestic tranquility took place, but there was a period where he was not allowed back into his own house. One of the other things that's interesting is that the game was not broadcast in Pawtucket. It was in Rochester. And as I told you previously, I was home that weekend and I went to bed that night with the game on and I would wake up every couple of hours and it was still going on. I couldn't believe it, <clears throat> but not in Pawtucket. It was not broadcast. I, I know, you know, it's interesting to think now about the quote unquote Red Sox nation, uh, how, how faithful a fan base that is and how, how, they know everything about everything. Um, uh, all, all, all things Red Sox is, is common knowledge. Well, back in 1981 in Pawtucket, um, the, the Pawtucket Red Sox were, eh, you know, mildly interesting. And uh, there was no uh, radio broadcast of the game. So there was a, there's a, there's a, a press box that kind of was like this kind of open mobile home that was, uh, you know, dangling from the rafters. Uh, and the only broadcasters uh, that night were uh, two guys from Rochester. Uh, the general manager, a guy named Bob Drew, who was out of favor with management and was about to be fired. So what they did was they kind of punished him by putting him on the road and doing play-by-play -play calls. And then, uh, uh, a, a relief pitcher for Rochester named Pete Torres, who was on the uh, on the injured list. And, you know, if you listen to the broadcast, he, he didn't have a future in radio. Let's just say that <laughs> he didn't have the mellifluous tones of you, Ken. Well, but, uh, I appreciate that. Or you, you either. <laughs> so. Um, right. So that's what happens. The only extant broadcast. Uh, around is the one that Bob Drew and Pete Torres did. And as you listen to it, and you heard some of it when you were just a, a boy in Rochester. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, they're getting a little punchy. You know, um, let's just say that broadcast booth is unheated. It's open. There are no facilities up there. And the game is going on and on and on. And um, as if you listen to it, you know, it's maybe eight hours that night, uh, Drew and Taras, the two broadcasters for Rochester, are beginning to like not make 
that much sense. <laughs> One of the things they do is they invite their listeners back in Rochester, if you're still listening out there, to call Howie at the station there in Rochester and, uh, you know, tell them that you're listening or, or provide your name and number and, um, and uh, for your loyalty, maybe we'll give you a couple of free tickets to a Rochester Red Wings game. And so what is surprising is how many people in Rochester were listening, okay? So here's this sorry little game being played in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and it's being transmitted across the Hudson River all the way to uh, nearly the southern tier of New York, to Rochester, New York, there on the lake. And there are hundreds and hundreds of people still listening. It gives me chills to even say that, right? They're yeah. listening. And so because those people called in, a lot of their names and phone numbers were recorded by the radio station and, uh, for, uh, and addresses, rather, so that they could receive Red Sox tickets. So I was able to get that list. And uh, here I was 30 years later calling these people up. You know, so, you know, some of the people on the list had passed away, um, but many were alive. Many were boys. Many were, you know, middle-aged women. And uh, they vividly remembered that night. They, vivid, they could tell me where they were. One, one man described being in his bedroom. He described to me what was on his walls. And he was just closing his eyes and listening to the words of Bob Drew and Pete Torres and imagining a baseball game. And uh, that's something that seems to have fallen by the wayside over the years. But what a, what a wonderful use of imagination. All right. The game eventually got stopped after the 32nd inning. And as I recall, according to your book, there were only about 28 people in the stands, but they eventually stopped the game. So they must have been able to reach Harold Cooper, who was the president of the International League, to have him stop it. That's right. So first of all, we know the number of people in the stands because, uh, but just as Rochester was trying to reward fans for their loyalty, so too were the Pawtucket Red Sox. And so they had someone go around to the mostly empty stands and get the names and addresses of people who were still there. And they too received free tickets and some kind of on, you know, uh, some kind of a gift for their, for their uh, fealty to the team. Um, and so that's what was happening in the stands. There were, you know, maybe two dozen people in the stands. Um, and um, meanwhile, the Pawtucket Red Sox front office was still trying to wake up Harold Cooper, you know, a few hundred miles away in Columbus, Ohio. And he finally answers the phone. And, uh, and the situation is explained to him. And he utters an expletive, probably not unlike what Billy Broadbent uttered <laughs> uh, to an umpire the year before, uh, but he, he uttered an expletive and he, he said, end the game now. Okay. So uh, they hang up the phone, they run out and they tell the umpire, the crew chief, look, the president of the international league said, you know, enough's enough. So they finished out the third, the, the 32nd inning, the 32nd inning, and it was about three o'clock in the morning, maybe a little later. And then after the, um, after the conclusion of the 32nd inning with the game still tied two to two, 
um, um, they postponed the game. And it eventually, that's the other thing that's interesting. They eventually finished it, but it only took about 18 minutes. Right. Well, two things, if, if I could. Uh, if you're a baseball fan, it was in the top of the 32nd, the Rochester Red Wings have a man on second base, okay? Just imagine this. It must have been so quiet that night, you know? It's as if the rest of the world were asleep, but, but here in this little ballpark, a baseball game is continuing to be played in front of 22, 23, 24 people. So the Red Sox have, a, uh, I'm sorry, the Red Wings have a man on second base and a ball is hit to Sam Bowen in the outfield. Now, Sam Bowen had played for the Boston Red Sox for maybe as long as you and I have been talking right now. Okay, it was a very quick visit up to Fenway. And now he's, he's not going to get back. He's not going to get back up. His, his baseball career is pretty much over. So the ball is hit to him. The runner is rounding third. And he throws the ball home. So I tracked him down. And I said... Hey, Sam, did you ever think about like throwing the ball over the backstop? Did you ever think about ending this by not making a play? And he got very, very upset with me. He was offended. And so I've always been struck by that. Here's a man who is committed to his purpose. Okay. He's not going to be going up to Fenway ever again. He's not going to be in the major league, uh, major league, uh, major leagues ever again. And yet, here is his play. He has to do what he has to do. And he throws the ball to uh, Roger LaFrancois, another name for Boston Red Sox fans. And uh, the run is tagged out. And so they go to the bottom of 30 seconds, still tied. Um, I just think that's a wonderful moment. You know, you, you, you have a job to do and you do it. And, and he did. And you're exactly right. So they called it at the end of the 32nd around 3.30 or so, whatever it was. And as the ballplayers are leaving the ballpark, the sky is beginning to brighten um, with the uh, approaching sunrise. And of course, it's Easter Sunday morning. And I think Wade Boggs were called hearing the birds chirping as they left the ballpark. So what happens is um, Major League Baseball goes on strike right about this time, okay? In 1981, Major League Baseball went on strike. So by the time the Rochester Red Wings returned to Pawtucket to play another series, but also to conclude this game, the entire country is hungry for baseball, okay? They haven't been able to see Major League Baseball in quite a while. And so whereas there were 22 people in the stands for the bottom of the 32nd, the place is sold out for the top of the 33rd. There are international media, uh, reporters from Japan, among others, um, at McCoy Stadium for the top of the 33rd inning. Uh, it's, it's become a baseball um, moment. Uh, it's being nationally televised. It's a big deal. And so you're exactly right. That inning lasts about 18 minutes. Um, the Red so the, I'm sorry, the Red Wings uh, do not score on the top of the 33rd. And in the bottom of the 33rd, um, the Pawtucket Red Sox do. They score a run, they win the game, and that's that. I'll bet uh, Ben Mondor wished it would have gone on a little longer. I will say the Pawtucket Red Sox, uh, a team that 
sadly, very sadly, no longer exists. Um, they um, now uh, are playing in Worcester uh, and McCoy Stadium is empty and has no clear purpose or future. Um, but I will say that Ben Mondor and the Pawtucket Red Sox um, celebrated and re-celebrated and re-re-celebrated this moment for decades because it, it put Pawtucket on the map of uh, baseball history, if you think about it that way. Oh, absolutely. And, and I saved this until, well, actually, there are three people that I want to discuss before we wrap it up. The one central figure, and very sadly, I think, is Dave Koza. He ended the game. Right. So I, I can tell you about that, yeah. And, and, and he, his life was never the same. He never made it to the majors. Uh, he went to the Red Sox to try and get them interested. And, he, and I remember he met with Ed Kenny, whose name I know, mm -hmm. uh, who was the farm director. And Koza said, you know, I'm interested in, in playing for the Boston Red Sox. And he said, well, we're not, which I thought was kind of cold and sad. Yeah. Yeah. Dave Koza is the, um, the beating heart of this game and what it means to me. Okay. So there are Hall of Famers who play in this game. There are many other successful major league ball players who were in this game. Um, Bobby Ojeda, um, also many people. And Dave Koza played for several years for the Pawtucket Red Sox. And he was a, he was a home run hitter and he was a good fielder. But at that time, the Boston Red Sox had four or five other first basemen ahead of him. Um, you, you know, there was, Yastrzemski was playing first base. Uh, Joe Rudy was playing first base sometimes. Um, Tony Perez, right? Um, mm. uh, and so there was no chance for Dave Koza. If he had belonged to another franchise or if he were playing today, he would be in the major leagues. But at that moment in time, the Boston Red Sox had more than enough first basemen. And so Dave Koza was out of luck. So he, in the bottom of the 33rd, um, he gets up and uh, Marty Barrett is on third base. And um, the pitcher for the Rochester Red Wings is a guy named Steve Grilly. And uh, Koza was not a very good curveball hitter. Okay. Um, and uh, finally, Grilly throws a curve and Koza sort of lunges at it with his bat. Uh, he does the best he can to get bat on ball. And he succeeds and he hits this kind of floater over Cal Ripken's head, just beyond his reach, almost like a, a, you know, a dream or a feather of a baseball floating over Ripken's head, and it lands in the outfield, and Barrett comes home, and the Paw Sox win the game, and soon Dave Koza is the toast of the town. He's on national television. He's being interviewed on a nationally broadcast morning show, and Finally, he thinks he's going to make it to the major leagues. Finally, he has caught the attention of the brass in Fenway. And uh, it doesn't work out. It does not work out. And so he plays another year or so, and he is soon 
no longer really welcome in the Red Sox organization. He never makes it to the major leagues. He then struggles with alcohol. His marriage falls apart. They had a few, they had a few children and he becomes a, a truck driver. And, you know, there's Wade Boggs and this Cal Ripken and Bobby Ojeda gets the win and, and some other ballplayers did extremely well in this game. But to my mind, Koza is the hero because how do we define a hero? Is it a guy who drives in the game-winning run? Or is it a guy who, who, who struggles to get beyond his demons and tries to um, do right by himself and his family? And that's what Dave Koza did. He worked hard to become sober. He's, uh, he's been in recovery for many, many years. Um, he and his ex-wife are on good terms. And he now lives in Las Vegas where he has children and grandchildren living and he's very, very much a part of their lives. So you think about, well, who's the hero here? And I think it's Dave Koza and it's not because he drove in the game winning run. The hero is? Dave Koza because he, he showed how to live. It's, his heroism is off the ball field in a way. Two other names that Red Sox fans should know that were in that game. Uh, Bruce Hurst and Rich Gedman. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, you know, Bruce Hurst, um, what a fine pitcher he was. Yep. Uh, I, I think about him and just he was he was such a, a sight to behold when he was on the mound. There was some something so graceful about him. Uh, and he, you know, he was he was he's a Mormon. And uh, he was hassled for that over the years. He was not a guy who, who drank or smoked or, or, or cussed or anything. And that's a hard, those are hard values to maintain when you're in a, in a clubhouse and a minor league baseball team. Um, but he did. <clears throat> and he pitched that night and he did well. And then, of course, he went on to great success. And uh, he was delightful to talk to. And Rich Gedman, um, he caught the first, I think he caught the first eight or nine innings. Um, and uh, uh, he also had great insight into that game because he's such a, uh, an acute observer of the game. And he went on, as you know, to uh, coach. He actually, I think he coached a team in Worcester for a while. Um, yes, he did. Yep. And uh, of course, he's, he's, uh, he's a secure in the pantheon of Red Sox ballplayers, I'd say. He also caught Roger Clemens' 20 strikeout game uh, <clears throat> against Seattle in 1986. That's exactly right. Just five years after this ball game. Yep. Now, how, I mean, I'm very impressed with your, not only your research, but your recall after all this time. How long did it take you to write the book and did you ever get discouraged? <laughs> um, it took me, uh, I guess, maybe a year and a half to two years. Um, you know, it was hard at times. It was very hard to get Cal Ripken to, you know, give me a half an hour. Um, and I, I thought I needed to hear what Cal Ripken remembered. And he was great when I spoke to him. It was hard to track down a lot of these ballplayers, uh, some of whom, you know, live um, in... Uh, in Central America or, or elsewhere in this, in this great world. And so it was hard to track them all down. Um, but um, 
a very good friend of mine. He became a very good friend of mine. He was uh, Lou Schweckheimer, who was, uh, uh, Ben Mondor had two uh, young men who helped him develop the Pawtucket Red Sox into really one of the best minor league franchises in the country. One was Mike Tambora and the other one was Lou Schweckheimer. And Lou helped me a great deal in tracking down a lot of these ball players and, and, and getting me records and what have you. And so he went on, he, he, um, he went on and, and, and to uh, run and own a couple of other minor league teams and was about to open a, a team in Wichita, the, the city of Wichita, Kansas, built a stadium for the team that he had brought there. And uh, he, um, he contracted COVID last year and passed away. He was only, he was only 62. Um, and uh, extremely difficult to think about talking about the longest game and its 40th anniversary without Lou Schweckheimer. Just as a side note, I interviewed a gentleman, I don't know whether you know the name, Larry Ruckman or not, but he wrote a book about uh, American Jews and American baseball and, America, and he called it America's Game. And he said that very few people can remember stuff, but they always can remember the first ball game they ever went to. I mean, I can remember it because it was with my dad and it was at Red Wing Stadium in Rochester where I grew up. Do you remember the first ball game you ever went to? You know, I, I think I do. Um, now it could be, I could be wrong. But I remember uh, in 1968 going to a doubleheader at Yankee Stadium. And uh, for a little while, the Yankees had the great ball player Rocky Calavito yep. on the team. And it was a doubleheader. And I often thought I was dreaming this, but now you can look this up fairly easily uh, through baseballreference.com and some other online reference materials. But I remembered that he pitched. <laughs> he pitched in, in I think, the second of the two games on that doubleheader. And uh, I looked it up, and sure, he did. He did pitch in that game um, because the Yankees wanted to save their bad arms. They were a very bad team back then. Um, but I remember that. I remember it was hot. You know, mm -hmm. I remember it was hot, and I remember Rocky Calavito pitched. I know that there was another time I went to a bat, a bat day at Yankee Stadium, and uh, I had a bat with the name Horace Clark inscribed ah. <laughs> on the bat, uh, you know, the, the exceedingly mediocre but much beloved second baseman for the very poor New York Yankees of the late 60s. I, I can remember a remark that Joe Garagiola made about that time of year, and he said the only time the Yankees looked like the Yankees was when Frank Crescetti went out to coach and Horace Clark played second base. I'll that's never forget that. That's and, exactly. the, and, and the first major league game I ever saw was at Yankee Stadium. I saw two games at Yankee Stadium in 1961. And in the second of those two games, Roger Maris hit home runs 52 and 53. Oh my so goodness. I remember... And, and the minor league game was in 1957 when Havana had a franchise in the International League and a knuckleball pitcher named Lynn Lubbenguth pitched for the Red Wings. And it was a Saturday night. Oh, wow. 
I'll never forget it. Listen, I, I want to thank you for doing this for me. I really appreciate it. And also to Gina Russo, who got me in touch with you. And uh, this is a great book for anyone to read. It is also on the Bard website, in case there's anyone that is listening. And I, I look forward to you writing more baseball books because there is a special romance and a rhythm about baseball and, and books like yours. And I, I hope it stays like that. I hope you'll be able to be a part of it. Well, thank you. Thanks very much, Ken. This has been very delightful. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it too. And that will do it for this edition of City Talk. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.